Welcome to Positive Disintegration Podcast. This is episode 11, Positive Disintegration in Children and Adolescents. Hello listeners, welcome back again to Positive Disintegration, Framework for Becoming Your Authentic Self. I'm your host, Emma Nicholson, and with me again is co-host, Dr. Chris Wells. How are you going, Chris? Hi, Emma. I'm well. How are you? Very well. How are things in sunny Colorado? Well, it was sunny and nice yesterday and most of the week, but today it's cold and might snow or probably will snow. So how are things there in Australia? Is it, um, is it very- autumn almost? Uh, it is, and you might have seen on the news, it's very rainy. We've unfortunately got a lot of flooding going on, um, and there's a lot of people who are finding themselves in a bit of a crisis um, and in turmoil. And that's right. I do. I have another friend uh, who shared on Facebook the the flooding there, and it, it does look terrible. It's not good, and um, our thoughts and best wishes go out to everybody who's been affected by the flooding. That's right. So I guess today, um, Chris, I believe, is a friend of yours. That's right. Today we have Tina Harlow joining us, who is my close friend. And I love Tina, and I'm so glad that she's here with us today. Excellent. It sounds like it's going to be a good and friendly conversation. So I guess today, Tina Harlow is a child and family therapist specializing in giftedness, and she works out of Steamboat Springs in Colorado. She's the founder of Guiding Bright, an organization which partners with parents to provide lifelong strategies to help bright children manage their unique challenges and access their full potential. She's also a creator and co-producer of the World Hope Project, an international children's video troupe sharing messages of hope and ideas for societal transformation. Welcome to the podcast, Tina. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. We're excited to have you with us. So I just want to say a few words about how we met and because it's, it's, you know, it's part of the story, I guess. And um, so we met in 2018 and it was at, it was at Linda Silverman's house actually when I was going to pick up Michael to give him a ride to the airport, but we didn't even really get a chance to talk that day. And so the first time we really had a chance to have a conversation was um, at the very end of the Seng conference in 2018. And for our listeners, saying stands for supporting the emotional needs of the gifted. And so, yeah, um, since that second half of 2018, you have been a part of my life, Tina, and it has been wonderful to work with you. We've had the chance to present together at a couple of conferences, and we've just spent an enormous amount of time really talking about Dabrowski's theory and especially its application in practice, really across the lifespan. But your work, of course, specializes in children and adolescents. Yeah, we have had some incredible conversations. Right. We really have. Yeah. And You've so, been instrumental in my life for sure. And also, yeah, in my son's life too. That's right. But yeah, you've been in, uh, instrumental. Exactly. You've been a huge part of my life in a great way. And so I'm glad to have you with us. Oh, thanks. I feel the same way. Oh, it's quite the love fest, right, Emma? And we're glad to have you with us, too. Yes. <laughs> love is in the air. So, Tina, I have been starting everybody off with the question of how they first learned or came across Dabrowski's theory. And so let's hear how you learned about it. 
Yeah, um, it was in 2014. And um, my son, I've already mentioned him, but he um, was really struggling. He was 11 years old, was really struggling. And I couldn't figure out what was going on with him. Um, he, you know, he'd always really enjoyed school and people and, you know, was a pretty happy kid, I guess. Um, and then I don't know, he just went into this depression and didn't want to go to school. And I just couldn't figure out what was, what was going on with him. So I started trying to figure it out and figure him out. And um, the giftedness led to the theory. And I mean, I was just, I started looking up one thing and it led to the next. And um, so I actually found an article by Sal Mendaglio that was talking about um, the theory and overexcitability and all those things. And then I just was like, insatiable, right? Like I, I had this thirst for this theory and I started like re researching everything I could. And I was like, I have to go to the Dabrowski Congress. And um, one thing led to another, um, but that was what, it just resonated with me immediately. Um, and I was just so excited to have this lens and it really opened up this whole door of understanding about my my child, my family, myself, you know, I, just, just so much. So um, yeah, the, the theory is a, a very integral part of my life. It's very relatable to learn that you came to it and, well, first of all, because of your kid, that's such a common thing that we hear, but also that you had to just dive right in and learn all about it. I can understand what that's like. Yeah. In your work, how do you help families learn about overexcitabilities and how to deal with them? Well, I do the overexcitability inventories on all of the families. Um, I, I do the, um, the parent inventory, you know, with the parents um, before I even meet with the children. And then um, generally, depending on the age of the kid, I do the um, inventory with the children as well. Um, and it's pretty interesting. I like to compare and see, you know, what the child, how the child sees themselves versus how the parents see them. And sometimes that can be pretty interesting and insightful in itself. It can. It's very interesting to see the way that overexcitability looks in different family members and how it can lead to clashes, especially yeah. between parents and their kids. Totally. And, you know, one of the things that I have found incredibly helpful in my practice is, um, you know, at times it just makes sense to get them all together. Um, I get the siblings together, I get everybody together and um, we just all do the inventory. Everybody, you know, all of the family members do the inventory um, and kind of see the areas where they're higher and lower and that kind of thing. And we also talk about how, each of those things interact within the family system. And it's always just so enlightening and the families love it. And it really gives them a new lens, like a, you know, it, it just gives them a different perspective of, of each other and, and also of the interactions that they have, you know, they see that usually it's this blaming the other person, but when they understand um, overexcitability in that aspect of the theory in relation to each other, um, it's just a beautiful thing. It's wonderful to, to see someone you love in a different light that's po more positive and, um, you know, gives a new lens. You, you said that sometimes the answers that parents give about their children are different to the answers from children themselves. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's maybe a, an indicator that even at the young age with overexcitability, is there sort of like a hidden aspect of self that's sort of going on there? That's something that no one on the outside sees? Yes, some, sometimes I do think that's the case is that, you know, there are that that intensity may exist within, but it's not necessarily coming out, right? That's more your maybe your introverted kids and that kind of thing. Um, and it, it, yeah, I agree with you. 
And then sometimes though, I think it can also be that the parent, um, you've got parents that are more in tuned and then other parents that maybe are less in tuned. And sometimes I think the parents aren't seeing the child, but sometimes I think it's probably based on what I said first, you know, that, that the child is maybe not expressing outwardly everything that they're experiencing within. So it's, it's pretty fascinating. Because I think if people come across overexcitabilities first when they're, they're doing any reading, they sort of maybe conjure this mental image of a very hyperactive, bubbly, expressive whirlwind of a child, but that, that's not always the case. Sometimes the whirlwind is just going inside. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it's really, I've had a few situations where, you know, the parents just really didn't see the overexcitability. They, they didn't know how intensely their children were having this experience and it was really kind of mind-blowing to them um, for them to know that their child was going through I mean it's in, it's intense it's difficult you know and um, yeah it, it then opens the door to be able to provide avenues for that to be opened you know for it to be discussed and expressed more freely. I have to admit to being one of the parents who didn't accurately see my child's overexcitability. I mean some of it was very obvious the psychomotor, the sensual, the emotional, but the imaginational and the intellectual in my son were not obvious to me. And it's interesting because for me, I have very strong intellectual. (laughs) And so, um, you know, we kind of clash in that way because I, I am such a text person. So into books, I had a child and kind of hoped that he would love books like I did when I was a little kid, you know, and so I had that expectation, but because he's dyslexic and, you know, he just, he just didn't take to books like I did when I was a kid. And I think that these are things that gifted families really struggle with because when a parent has strong overexcitabilities in any direction and their kid just looks differently. I mean, I would argue now that my kid does have a strong intellectual overexcitability, but for him, it looks completely different than mine. Yeah. And it doesn't have to do with books. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. It's a thirst for learning, right? Like learning what it is Mm -hmm. that they're interested in, not what we think they should be interested in. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. The expectations that get set up between parents and children cause a lot of problems. Yep. You know, one that I find most interesting as far as the disconnect goes is a parent who really at least doesn't see themselves as imaginational. Maybe they haven't had a rich fantasy life but their child has a very rich fantasy life and they don't get it. Like a disconnect, you know, there's a disconnect. Um, And then also I think the emotional too, if you've got a parent that's not as high on the emotional um, and a child who is high on the emotional, sometimes the parents like, you know, why is this kid so worried about what everybody thinks? Or why is this kid like responding in this way? I never responded in this way when I was a kid, you know, anyway, yeah, that those are two that I think those are interesting because those come up a lot. I agree. And actually the imaginational is what was on my mind. And, you know, it's, it's hard for me as a parent, like I want to talk about my son's life a little bit and share because it it makes it easy for me to explain things, but I also want to protect his privacy. And so it's hard, but he has such a strong imagination and I just didn't recognize that in him until he was, I don't know, I want to say nine or 10 maybe. Mm -hmm. And so 
I wish that I had, and but the, I mean, for our listeners who've heard many episodes, obviously I have a strong imagination too and had this imaginal world. And to know that my son also had this similar process and not recognize it until he was that old is kind of embarrassing. But it looks different. You know, it does look different. And sometimes I see that play out more in kids gaming and things like that versus like role playing. And, you know, like, I, I just think there's different ways that it manifests itself. Well, when we had Frank Fork on, uh, he was also talking about the fact that particularly with imagination, like there's a lot of parents who don't want to admit that, oh, my child has imaginary friends or mm-hmm. exhibits this behavior because they say that there's something wrong with it. Like they're all forced going, yes, completely intellectual and yes. you know, yes. has an inquisitive mind because that's seen as a positive thing, whereas the imaginational thing can be seen as more of a negative. Yes, that's so true, Emma. That's so true. Yep. Yeah, we don't honor imagination. It's sadly, sadly, sadly. Oh, I mean, we do in the movies, right? We like to go to movies, but for some reason, uh, yeah, we see, you know, children are made fun of for having an imagination beyond the years that you would expect. Oh, you just reminded me of a story that Michael has told me where I guess he was doing a presentation in Australia or New Zealand. And, you know, one of the parents in the audience said, well, what good is imagination? And somebody else said, it keeps them sane. <laughs> Amen. Right. Right. I don't know. Yes. Ask Tolkien what good an imagination is. You know, like, come on. So, particularly when you're talking about art, like, where would we be? You. Know, That's right. The, the world's lent towards now, you know, fantasy and sci-fi, and you know, it's no longer the realm of the geek. And where would we be without those people with imaginations? So true. Well, another question we have, Tina, is we're wondering, and of course, it's in the title of this episode. But we're wondering what disintegration looks like in children or adolescents or both and how this manifests in the kids that you work with. Yeah, well, I am, you know, speaking purely from my own experience. I am the expert of my own experience. <laughs> so just say that um, of, of my experience of my as a parent, my experience with my clients and certainly my experience with myself. So, um, you know, everything I offer up here is from my own experience here. You know, what I've seen in children um, is sometimes it's manifested in physical ailments um, that may require hospitalization and may or not be explained medically, right? I mean, sometimes I've had kids that have ended up going to the hospital and nobody can figure out what's going on with them. I had this one child that I worked with and he could not go to school. I mean, he was so anxious, so stressed. Um, He if he could have shrunk, you know, if he could have disappeared into the walls, he would have done that. You could see that in him. He was just so meek and so like within himself. And I, you know, I, no matter what I did, I could not, you know, I just, he couldn't move forward. He just was really stuck. Um, And he ended up getting very ill and had to be hospitalized and everything. And um, anyway, he, he had to, he had to quit school for a whole semester, but through the process, I mean, it was a, I would say this whole thing was a disintegration, um, most definitely. And through this whole process, he started the next fall as a she, um, and she was bold and strong and was just full of life. Um, And it was an amazing transformation. And I have to say, you know, back when, when he was he and he was um, really like lost within himself. I would sit with him in his room. I'm often in children's rooms and living rooms and such. And I would sit with him and I would be with him on Minecraft 
And he was amazing. I mean, he would had such leadership skills. It was, I mean, he had everybody listening to him. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is who this child is. Like he is bold, you know, he is not this meek little thing. Um, and so when he became she and then emerged through this transformation process, um, I just really could see how congruent this child's world had become. And it was, it was just a really amazing thing to watch. So another, I mean, that's, that's one of them is that they sometimes manifest physically, but, um, you know, certainly existential depression is something um, that I see in kids and have experienced that in my own home as well. And that can manifest in a lot of different ways. And a lot of times that is connected with school refusal and not being able to get out of bed and that kind of stuff. Um, and that can be triggered by just a book, you know, like reading a book that's about a really heavy topic and then really thinking about why am I here? What, you know, all of that. And certainly, oh my goodness, this world right now is just fodder for existential depression, good grief, you know, just all of the things that this brings up. And then I, I also have to say, I, you know, in children, I often see a spiritual piece, um, that they may not fully recognize as spiritual, um, but I see that, I kind of see that connection, but in many ways we have crushed spirituality um, and we've moved it into dogma. And so, it, you know, a lot of times adults may have avenues for spiritual growth and to pursue those avenues, but a lot of times children don't even have a frame of reference for it. So um, I see sometimes some interesting spiritual things that happen. I had a 10 year old and the parents called me and they were distraught because they felt like this child was having a mental breakdown. Um, he was really um, just in total angst and having a hard time. And I met with him and I do this thing with children a lot of times called the world game. It's a um, game that's been around for a long time, but it's just a building activity. Um, and you could probably do something similar with other building materials. But, but I did this activity with him and in the activity, um, I just, so many spiritual themes emerged. You know, he was saying, um, we see bad things, but we're so worried about ourselves that we walk on by. Everyone could be dead and people don't care. Um, there's people on a bench and they're so worried about their own comfort that they don't even care that a guy fell off of the bench. And it's just, you know, these kind of, these kind of things where he's really looking at like, it's like a disillusionment with human beings to a certain degree. And then he also made, made some statement in that session that we had together where he was saying, you know, he had this green figure, this little human. And he said, um, one green guy can make a difference. And when he shows up, he helps people. Um, and so for me, I just, I saw spirituality in that as well as a, again, like disillusionment and things like that. Yeah. So that's some of the things, I mean, the other one, um, would certainly be more on the psycho, like what we would consider psychosis. And I think sometimes psychosis um, is very greatly misunderstood. And I think that sometimes we end up pushing people and making that situation worse because we are not understanding them. Our judgments, I think, contributes to the breakdown, right? The, just the, the falling apart. Because I've definitely, I have seen kids that um, when they felt understood, even, the, even in the middle of that, when they felt like they weren't crazy, um, they were able to recover so much um, more resiliently. I mean, so, you know, they were able to recover, I guess, quicker and um, in a more positive way than if they were just seen as broken and messed up and something's wrong with them. You just made me think of a parent that I interviewed for my dissertation whose son 
was psychotic. He, well, he developed schizophrenia, you know, as a teenager. And it really, you know, I think I remember from his story that it's true. I mean, it, it's really easy to make the situation worse by responding in the wrong way. And I just remember this parent, you know, expressing that in the interview with me, the, the regret about, you know, if only we'd known we could have responded better, supported him better. And I think that like, these are the problems when you're a parent, like everything is so emotionally charged. You want to, you want to help, but it's also so frightening to watch your child struggle and suffer. Right. Right. And in all of our efforts to try to like bring them out of this thing, right. That like, you've got to come out of this because we're so worried we are exacerbating it because really they need to feel accepted and loved and supported and, um, honored when when we're when we're adding stress to a situation that's already otherworldly <laughs> it's it's just a it, it's a hard thing and and it's so complicated because it is another world right there's different dimensions and there's di- a, anyone experiencing either spiritual emergency or psychosis is having a very different experience that exists on a different plane um, whether it's darkness or light we, we can't understand it and we don't need to understand it. We just need to help them to know that they're not crazy and that we're going to support them through it. Um, easier said than done. I mean, sometimes people, it cannot be managed at home and people might need to be hospitalized. Um, but I think sometimes if we can, um, you know, greet people with love and acceptance, um, they can, the kids are actually able to move through it. Tina, you're talking about these sorts of, I mean, you're talking about physical manifestations of stress um, spiritual crisis, existential depression. I mean, they're not things that people would normally associate with children or think that they're even capable of having. I mean, in an adult, you know, you get an ulcer, the first thing people would say, oh, it, it's got to be stress. You know, your body mm-hmm. wears down and we immediately associate that an adult's capable of thinking in a fashion that that would have some sort of stress-related physical response and, you know, adults are capable of having some sort of spiritual waking or, you know, viewing the world in a way. But it, do you find that that sort of lack of awareness that these things can happen to children sort of might mean that they slip through the cracks? So even with, like, physical stress responses, you know, keep taking them to the hospital because they're a sickly child, but no one thinks, well, maybe it's got to do with their mental health? Absolutely. I think we are so often in our own, in our own frame, frame of reference, right? We all are operating out of our own experiences and everything. And I think we're trying to, you know, we're just trying to get, make them fit <laughs> into what we expect. Um, and I think very often we're not seeing them. We're not seeing um, the fact that they can go through adult things as children. You know, these, they can have some of these more intense experiences. We just want them. I mean, what our world does is it's basically all about acquiescing, right? It's like, just get it together so you can go and be in school, just get it together so I can go to work, just get it, you know, it's just like, we want them to acquiesce. We want them just to be normal. Um, And in doing that, we are often not seeing what's truly underneath everything. Be a good kid, behave. Yes. Well, that's right. I remember you, I mean, you were with us one time, Tina, when in the morning, my son was refusing to go to school. And it's just, when you have a kid who is refusing school regularly, it really is such a stressful dynamic in your home because you just want them to go and do it. And yet their behavior is telling you that there is something about school that is not working. Yeah. 
And I'm going to say first, like I said, this is all from my own experience as a parent. I have been in that role. I have done that too, Chris. I mean, I have pushed and pushed in my belief that, oh my gosh, you've got to be okay. and You've got to do what's expected in this society, right? Um, I've done the same exact thing myself. I've learned, you know, it's all a learning thing. It is quite the learning curve to be a parent. That's for sure. I'm still yeah. learning it. Yeah. Well, and it's, it just, if, you know, we really are in this position of having to consciously um, not conform basically sometimes in order to really um, care for our children, you know, I mean, that is the fact of matter. That's true. I'm tempted to ask you, I'm interested in talking more about the experience of being gender nonconforming and you've already brought up a client who was trans. And so do you, is this common in your caseload of clients for gifted kids to be gender nonconforming in some way? Yeah, it absolutely is. And honestly, it gives me hope. Um, I think it's amazing that people can finally have the opportunity to be who, whoever they are, you know, and <laughs> the beautiful thing I think about, you know, I, the way I describe it sometimes is it's like the, the cereal of an aisle of the local grocery store. There's so many options now. Right. And of course, just as they try on clothes, they're trying on different things to see what fits. And I have, I, I would say, gosh, I don't, I don't know if I could quantify it, but a large number of the kids that I work with are, are thinking about these things and trying to figure it out and trying on different things. Um, and I have kids young, you know, I've, I've had a seven-year-old um, that was really like not wanting to go through puberty, was really like thinking about those kinds of things and who they're attracted to and, and that. And, um, you know, gifted kids are out of the box thinkers as well. You know, they're, um, you know, the multiple choice doesn't always work for them, right? They're looking at possibilities. And so it makes total sense that these different possibilities would be prevalent in the gifted community. And I have to say, I mean, a few years ago, I was fortunate enough, and I think Chris, you were there too. I participated in a workshop. I attended a workshop through SoulSpark Learning, which is Kate Bactel's organization, if you know her. Um, she had John Wingflower there. So he was talking about two spirits, one heart, five genders, um, which is really prevalent in the um, Native American cultures and probably other indigenous cultures as well. And um, the Lakota tribe, particularly, um, you know, he that was the tribe that he had brought up. And when he was talking about all of this and he was talking about how these individuals very often were androgynous and they were revered, like they were revered in their communities because they had the spiritual connection and they, they, it was so fluid, right? The gender and the sexuality, all of it was so fluid. So anyway, I just got so excited after that. And I just started reading um, about all of that. Anyway, it's fascinating. And I often share that information with parents who are having a hard time coming to terms with it because we are, you know, if we're in a, a different age now than what we had where, you know, now there are different options and um, we didn't necessarily grow up with all those different options. So we're in a, um, you know, so I think parents struggle with that sometimes. It's a hard thing to try to, um, you know, it changes expectations of what people had, right? I think it's wonderful. I think we're evolving um, to a, a much more open and loving and uh, authentic experience of ourselves. Yes, I agree. And the authenticity of it is very interesting to me. Again, from the perspective of parents and children, 
In this kind of situation, are parents always able to see that this is their child's quest for authenticity? Talk to us a little about um, the difference between when parents are affirming with their child and when they deny and try to force the child kind of into their, who they want them to be, meaning the parent. The difference is night and day. Yeah, the difference is absolutely night and day. And I think, again, we have to understand, of course, there is an adjustment, right? There's an adjustment, either, even for the most open of families, there's an adjustment. But I, I find that those, those who are able to make that adjustment, you know, the kids just have, the prognosis is so much better, you know, for them to just be able to embrace themselves and go through, I mean, it, they're on a journey, you know, they're on a journey. And um, in my mind, we have no business um, trying to impose ourselves on people's journeys, you know, on children's journeys, on who they are finding their purpose and who they are in this world, you know, and um, I, I've seen kids go through pretty significant depression um, when they just cannot be who they need to be and who they feel like they're here to be. Um, yeah. But, and I've seen wonderful things happen when, um, when parents have, got, have like mustered up what it's taken you know, it has taken a lot for some of these parents to um, walk alongside their child through this journey rather than try to drive it. But it's pretty amazing. And the connection's beautiful. Like the connection, the most important thing is connection. And when we are trying to impose our values over connection, it's not helpful. There's nothing, I, I don't see any good that comes from that. The most important thing is connection. That is so true. I can say that in my own journey as a parent too, it really has to take precedence over everything else. I'm wondering if you can share some strategies for living and thriving with families who have strong overexcitabilities. This is a question that people tend to ask me at the end of conference presentations, and I'm not very good at offering strategies. <laughs> so we would appreciate it if you could talk to us about how that looks. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think sometimes just having um, the lens, the lens itself makes a huge difference, right? I mean, maybe that's not going to solve everything. Okay. I, it's not going to solve everything. It's not, but the lens can make such a, a difference. I, um, I was working with a 12 year old recently and she had just had so many diagnoses. She had, she was already viewing herself as broken. She just felt so like just down about who she is, you know? Um, and so when I spent a few sessions going over overexcitability with her and, and doing all of that, and honestly, I mean, she lit up, <laughs> she lit up, she smiled and she was like, thank you. Thank you. She just kept thanking me for giving her this lens in which to see herself. Um, and she was like, are is, does this mean that there's nothing wrong with me? Does this mean that I'm okay? You know, um, and sometimes just that lens makes a big difference. But as far as strategies go, because even with the lens, you need strategies, right? We all need strategies to deal with the intensity of overexcitability and the anxiety and the tension and all of the things that come with these experiences. So, you know, there's a lot of different strategies. I can kind of go through different ones for the different areas of overexcitability, but certainly, you know, every individual is going to have their own experience. And um, I find that I'm, I am pulling out so many different strategies all the time for different kids based on what they're experiencing. 
Um, so, you know, on the psychomotor piece, obviously these are kids that need, they have a high need for movement. Um, and so, you know, any way in which they can do that, even while they're learning is super helpful. Um, so yeah, I mean, that one's probably the easiest one, right? Because that's just let them move, <laughs> which it sounds like a no brainer, but we still don't let them move in school quite often. Um, not as much as they need to sometimes. I've got a kid right now I'm working with. She is an avid reader. She's been reading forever and she reads on her hoverboard. Um, it cracks me up anyway. It's just funny, but that's how she's taking in information. That's how she's processing it. And we don't, we want to separate those all the time for some reason. Then sensual overexcitability, um, you know, for some of them, it's going to mean trying to decrease the intensity of the stimulation, depending on, again, this, that could be so many, that could look so different for so many different people, depending on what they're experiencing um, in the sensual domain. But um, for some, it might be reducing the intensity, whereas for others, it may be, they may be, you know, they may need um, a picture of a beautiful place at school, right, to help calm them and that kind of thing, or they, um, or maybe they need to pet their dog while they're, again, to try to calm them down or being able to stimulate that sensual piece of themselves. And then on the imaginational side, which again, can be so hard because so often these kids are having nightmares or daymares, they're having otherworldly experiences. Um, generally, I think frequently, um, and people often don't know exactly what's going on with them. And they think they're just daydreaming or whatever. Anyway, the, a lot of those kids are having intrusive thoughts. Um, and so a lot of the work that I do with kids around that, depending again on what exactly is happening, but I do a lot of work with trying to um, desensitize themselves to the thoughts. So like, get it out, right? Like, don't keep it a secret, talk about it, draw it whatever. I mean, we tend to shy away from the darker stuff, like the stuff that looks scary, but kids need to be able to release that. And we need to be able to provide space to release that without freaking out on them. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, you know, they need to be able to get it out. Um, and then the more we can just like be matter of fact in our responses, the more I think it takes away some of the intensity of what they're experiencing. And then sometimes for kids that are having recurring nightmares, um, you know, I have them change the ending, you know, you can change it in different ways and you kind of practice going over different, you know, maybe going over that over and over again, you know, again, as part of desensitization as well, but that they can have control. Um, they can harness their imaginational overexcitability and, um, and also theater, you know, like for kids that are experiencing some of this, just having avenues for um, expressing their imaginational selves is helpful. So being able to, yeah, like do theater. Um, on the intellectual piece, that cognitive hyperactivity can be torture. Um, and so, you know, yoga, meditation, decreasing incoming stimuli. So decreasing videos and all of that, especially in the evening before bed could be helpful. And then sometimes, you know, they may need um, something that helps with recurring thoughts, like some GABA, which is a supplement or a natural sleep aid or something like that. And then emotional overexcitability, one of the hardest, if not the hardest, one of them um, is I think something is just, you know, a lot of times it's interactions that um, are so difficult and misinterpreted or whatever. Interactions can be very, very difficult with the emotional overexcitability. Um, and so I think sometimes it's reminding yourself that you don't need to solve the problem. You don't need to intervene right that moment. 
um, just give yourself space, take care of yourself, and then you can come back and try to resolve the situation. For many kids and adults, you know, when we have what we perceive as a difficult situation with someone or just a bad moment, right? Like an interaction that just felt like, uh, and we start playing over, why did I say that? Why did I do that? You know, sometimes it, we need to touch base with that person in order to just be able to move beyond it, you know, and just say, you know, did I hurt your feelings yesterday or did I, whatever, you know, just to try to just, I think, have the, have a little conversation and move through it. Um, and then certainly for the emotional piece too, is again, just trying to find things that are self-soothing, things that are calming and um, can help you love yourself in those times when you're, you know, we go to that, we go to that self-deprecating part sometimes um, and trying to prevent that from happening or trying to pull out of that as soon as possible. And I, I do want to say too, that, you know, certainly as I'm sure you've talked about, Chris, there's so many different things that fall under the umbrella of overexcitability. Um, and sometimes medication is needed. And sometimes a therapist is needed. And sometimes acupuncture might be needed. And sometimes chiropractic or massage. I mean, there's so many things that we can utilize. And again, sometimes like even a residential stay for a little while um, might be what the person needs, you know? So I think my my rule of thumb is whatever works to support you through this process, you know, that's going to be, I, then I, I think whatever works, whatever people need. Um, I did um, some YouTube videos with my own sort of tips for how I deal with my own overexcitabilities um, and mostly for, for adults and not for kids, but there's like a lot of overlap. One thing I found is there's, they fall into two distinct categories. Um, and I have this joke with, with my friend that when you're a little bit different, it's like being a star-shaped peg and everybody's trying to cram you into a round hole of life. Mm -hmm. And when people mm -hmm. try to force you in, all your points fall off and you've still mm -hmm. got gaps under your arms. Um, so for me, there, there's two categories. And one is learning to pull your points in and roll because at the end of the day, the world is a round place and you have to learn at some point to try and get along comfortably in it as best you can. And then the other category is carve out a little star-shaped space for yourself mm. at some point in your life where you can just be you and let all your overexcitabilities out. So that for me is the two categories of things is that mitigation piece of trying to learn to roll a bit smoother in life, but also finding that little space or those little moments where you can just let it out and be yourself. Oh, and I love that visual. You know, what a wonderful like metaphor. It really gives you an image. That's great, Emma. I love it. Yeah, thank you. I mean, thanks to both of you for talking about this. I mean, Emma, I love that you have created videos too to help. I mean, I remember last spring seeing that and I was just so blown away. I'm like, I can't believe that there's somebody making videos about how to deal with overexcitability as an adult. It's interesting to me. It just that that you're I mean, who else has done that? I mean, how are you the first person that's like, I'm going to make a video series on how to deal with OE as an adult? Yeah, that's so I, awesome. That's so such a great resource. Yeah, I don't know. But, you know, if, if you're a pacer, like, I think your needs are a bit different when you're older. Like for me, like now that I'm a bit older and I pace a lot. So I'm like, get yourself a, a pair of comfortable and supportive shoes. So 
<laughs> so it's a little bit different and like you know if you're up and down all the time in the middle of the night because either you know you're overstimulated and you can't sleep you need horizontal time you know whether or not you're asleep your back just won't <laughs> deal with those things so the tone of them's a little bit different to sort of deal with the you know advancing age but you know that that's the way it is I guess so Tina the next place that I want to take us in this conversation is to talk about being a neurodiversity affirming practitioner one of the things that has been really interesting to me as I've gotten to know you is that when we were first becoming friends and I was telling you about my story and my history you know, I, w- I would talk to you about my history of mental illness and you would be like, well, but was it really mental illness? And I was pretty determined to keep using those words for myself and to use that language of disorder. And it took me a long time to even open up the door of my mind and think that, well, maybe I wasn't, maybe it isn't a history of mental illness exactly. Maybe I was misunderstanding myself at the time And it's interesting because you are very intentional in the language that you use. And that doesn't mean that you don't believe that there are, I hate to even use the word condition, but like conditions say such as ADHD or autism in the kids that you work with, but you take issue with the word disorder as part of these terms. Yes. Am I, yeah, is that the, am I representing you well there? You are. Absolutely. Because I definitely, I'm the first person to say I'm the poster child for ADHD for sure, but I don't like that word disorder on the end, you know, I, and not just for myself, obviously, but for anyone, I, I, I don't know how we went to that. It's one thing to have categories, which I think are incredibly helpful. Um, but it's another thing to stick that dirty word on the end, the disorder, because then it's brokenness, right? It's broken. Something's wrong with you. And I just had enough kids feel like something is wrong with them, that that is an issue for me. And if I could see one thing changed in my lifetime, it would be that, well, I don't know, I shouldn't say this. There's a lot of things that need to be changed. But one of them that I felt really passionately about is that the DSM um, would change the word disorder to difference. I think that would be amazing. But, you know, anyway, yeah until that happens. (laughs) Well, right. And I see my, I resonate with ADHD. I see myself as an ADHD -er, but I don't think that that means there's anything wrong with me. And what I love about Dabrowski's theory is that I can still consider myself as part of that ADHD world. You know, I mean, people who resonate with ADHD, I get them. I feel like they're my people, just like I feel that way about gifted people. But Overexcitability is a non-pathologizing way of looking at myself compared to ADHD. I mean, we just, things are changing and evolving, of course, and there is more of a community around these, you know, around these differences, these neurotypes or however you want to conceptualize them. Yeah. But we still have a long way to go. We do. We have such a long way to go. And I have to say, I mean, this whole thing brings up my own internal turmoil. I mean, honestly, it is turmoil for me because I advocate for children. That's what I do, right? I'm I'm trying to help people understand them and how they experience the world. I'm into in the schools, I'm consulting and that kind of thing. 
Unfortunately, our systems are still working off of this model of disorder and the children cannot get the help that they need unless they are diagnosed with an actual disorder. Um, and I have to do that. I, I am I am put in the position if I want to help children of having to to, to label or help label, you know, um, them with different things. And that is that creates great conflict for me. It's very difficult. Um, and so far, I've just had to err on whatever the kid needs. Right. Um, and doing that. But I it, but it doesn't rest well with me. Um, I just I just wish we could we could say this child needs this and this and this, and this is how this child is in the world without that word, you know, like just that one word I'm on my wish list that's up there. We've had this conversation so many times and I, it's, it's great because you have really challenged me and my thinking around this. And it, a big part of it is that I spent so many years of my life considering myself disabled. And I mean, honestly, I don't see myself as disabled anymore. Yay. But I, I never thought that I never thought that that would change. It's it's interesting to me when I mean, even last year, I think I, I still was on the fence about it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. am I am I not disabled? Like I it's really interesting to me the way that once you accept that kind of label, it, it really does change you. And it's I mean, for me personally, it limited me in some ways. And yet it was also necessary clearly Mm -hmm. for me for a long time like it was something that I I needed in order to make my way through the world and I I would never want other people who feel disabled to think that that there's that it's a problem exactly you know I mean Mm -hmm. our world isn't built for people who are different and so our world creates the situation where I mean the social model of disability right where I mean, if, if accommodations are available, then the person wouldn't be disabled. If, if we, if we help them and accommodate them, then we would, then they wouldn't be in that position. And that's how I feel. I feel Mm -hmm. like I'm not disabled now because my life is set up in a way that there's enough support and structure for me. And I have figured out my path and that hasn't always been the case. And so I just like the language that we use is, is so important it's important and it's kind of difficult to deal with. Yeah. It matters. I think language is, it's huge. Yeah. Right. And if you had options, you know, if you had other options, you would have still found your peeps. You would have still found the categories or whatever, but it wouldn't have necessarily had to be laden with some of that language that you turn towards yourself, you know, that whole piece around people feeling like they're broken and then picking up on Dabrowski's theory and going, oh, I don't feel broken anymore. I just feel different. Um, and that shift in perception on yourself is really powerful for people. Well, they mm-hmm. haven't changed fundamentally. It's just this thing where they went, oh, I don't feel deficient or defective or broken anymore. I just feel different. Um, and I, I get heaps of feedback and I even got an email this morning from someone saying, I always thought I had deficiencies and I'm starting to see that I'm just different. And I think that's one of the things I really love, um, as you said, Chris, about Dabrowski's theory is it's because it's non-pathologizing, it just shifts that perspective of self and allows a bit of self-forgiveness. 
And I love the work that you and Chris are doing. I mean, what you all are doing at just what you're providing, just what you heard from that listener, you know, like you're giving people a new lens. It's, it's so beautiful. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, and it's fun to do it. I have to admit that it's so much fun to do these podcast recordings and to have guests and, and to talk with Emma. It's just fun. And I think it comes across. It does. <laughs> So Tina, I want to ask you about the World Hope Project, which I love. And instead of me trying to describe it at all, I'm just going to pass the baton to you. Tell us about the World Hope Project. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I um, It's like my passion project. I uh, When I saw the world come to, you know, it, it was basically at the beginning of COVID um, in that spring of 2020, I guess, when we really you really saw the world kind of coming together to a certain degree, right? It was before everything went nuts even more, but um, yeah. And in that moment, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is the best of who we are. Like, this is our capability. Look what we're doing. Like we are all coming together to fight one foe kind of thing, you know? And um, so anyway, I wrote a piece of prose and I contacted um, children around the world. I had some contacts with different schools around the world and, and, that, and different people. And um, anyway, I pulled together this group of kids and we basically became the World Hope Project. And we've created um, three videos now um, and on different topics that are of you know concern to the kids. And the, the kids are from like, I think we have 25 countries represented. It moves, moves around sometimes. Um, and we have kids that are ages eight to 18. And anyway, it's just wonderful. It's, a, it's, you know, we put out messages of hope and positive societal transformation um, is the idea. And certainly um, we'd love for you to check out our YouTube videos and like them and subscribe to our channel and share them and all of that good stuff. Um, the last video that we made that was on mental health, um, we're trying to get 20,000 viewers for that. So um, the kids really set that goal and wanted to do that. So we'd love for you to share that. But I also wanted to just share you know, we're now also trying to figure out like, you know, we wanted to put something out for the, um, for the circumstances that we're all, you know, just Ukraine and Russia and the pain and the suffering and uh, just we're all hurting, you know, it's just a really painful time in our world right now. And um, so we were trying to figure out what to how to address that and what to do. And we were talking about maybe having, um, you know, sending messages to the children of Ukraine or something like that. And having, you know, having the colors of Ukraine, but I put this out to the group and um, to, to kind of get that going. And this morning I got an email from Marco um, who's in Italy and he's 11 years old. Um, and I just want to share this because this is the beauty of the kids. Um, some, you know, the kids that are in the world right now, it's just, they, they really just amaze me, but I'm just going to share a few little excerpts from what he, he sent in the email and he sent the email out to our whole group. And he said, the, you know, dear friends, um, the disaster is the result of a long time of struggles and injustices, which, as always, do not have a single point of view. Personally, I think that we shouldn't um, be against anyone because hate is never the solution. My message will be for peace. Also, recalling the many wars further away from these, I would be hypocritical and not very serious to be, to be moved only by this war that touches us closely because we are all afraid that Europe will again become the land of bombings and war. And we are all praying and hoping that the politicians will ensure that this war ends for the good of Ukraine and the whole world. 
and he he went on and said some other things, but he said, um, so I will not wear the color the colors of a nation, but those of peace to say that it does not matter where the violence and aggression comes from. We want peace. And then he put at the end. Um, oh, he also went through like all of the different um, wars around the world that need to be addressed. You know, there's so many other things going on as well. And um, there's war has brought suffering for so many people on on no matter what side that you're on. Um, and then at the end, he said, I will be in the audience on March 19th with the Pope, with many of my, he's in a choir, many of my choir mates, and we will pray together with him for peace. And that came from an 11 year old this morning. And I was just wowed at the advanced development of some of our children. Thanks so much for sharing that. I love it. And yes, listener, please check out the show notes and give these kids some views on the YouTube videos, please. Because I know it's hard to, it's, I don't know, it's hard to get traction and they so deserve it. Like they, if you watch these videos, I love to watch them because the kids, well, first of all, I, we're friends. And so I've been with you while you're collecting videos and trying to put it together. And I know that, I mean, these kids will, will really work hard to create their little segment. It's a really beautiful project that you and Rosa have worked on together. Yes, and thank you for bringing up Rosa. Rosa Medina is a Peruvian educator. She is the co-producer of the World Hope Project, and I am so grateful to have her by my side for that. I also wanted to mention that I do know Kate Bechtel, and that I am actually on the board of directors of SoulSpark Learning. And so I'm going to add a link in the show notes to the empowerment series that you mentioned, Tina, because there's some great videos that people can view from that. Perfect. And I also want to include a link in the show notes to the ebook that you did a few years ago, kind of around the time when we met, because Tina interviewed all of these experts in the field and transcribed them and put together their advice. And I just think it's a great um, resource. Thank you, Chris. And it's free. It's free. It's um, you can. It's a link on my website. Um, and so it's free. It's a, um, it is a wonderful resource because all of the experts gave such great advice. Um, and to be transparent, you will then be kicked into my um, blog, vlog kind of thing. But just know I hardly ever blog or vlog. So. That's right. <laughs> anyway, it doesn't you, feel spammy at all. It's, uh, it's uh, yeah. And you can unsubscribe at any time, but it is, it is connected to my blog. So. Well, thank you so much. This has been really great, Tina. What a wonderful conversation. And I look forward to having you back to talk about more things because there are so many other topics to explore with you. Oh, I would love that, Chris and Emma. This has been great. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, and thanks to you too, Chris, for being on the podcast again with me. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you, Emma. It is a pleasure as always. And thank you to our listeners. We always appreciate you tuning in and joining us. And if you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, don't forget to hit those little stars and give us a rating if you can. If you've got any questions, feedbacks or topics that you'd like us to address, you can get in contact with us via email at positivedisintegration.pod at gmail.com or you can get in contact with us on Twitter or Instagram. And until next time, keep walking that path to your authentic self.